Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 28th, 2017, and this is episode 1994 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Friday. Friday means it is the Monster Show of the Week. It is time for the Expert Council Q&A Show, and I've got a good lineup for you today. I've got a question on Zika concerns when traveling to the tropics for Dr. Bones. I've got a question on concealed carry when running and working out for Gary Collins, because that can be a challenge. I've got a question on plans for the Ozarks for erosion control for Ben Falk, and I'm going to bat a little assistance on that, because Ben's really a cold climate guy, and while it gets cold in the Ozarks, it's not a cold climate. Uh, question on the Ford 5.4 liter motor from Charles Sandville. A little similar thing to what I covered yesterday on the 6.0 uh, diesel uh, Power Stroke Ford, uh, but from a different standpoint, and but kind of a similar vibe you'll get in an answer, which is kind of cool with two different total perspectives on this. Uh, dealing with dead chickens for Darby Simpson in a way you probably hadn't thought about before, and uh, living in a van and having AC, and I don't mean AC in the van, I mean like for living in that van and you're sleeping and you want it to be nice and cold in there, Stephen Harris on that. And the skinny on the, quote, amazing Russian knife sharpener, Patrick Rorman, will weigh in on that. And, guys, I would love to permanently add Patrick Rorman to the expert council. The only thing I need is about six questions in a row for him. If I have six questions in a row for him, I can hold him for 12 weeks and we can get him rolling. But I just never got enough questions on knives sharpening and sharpening tools and axes and stuff like that for Patrick. If I get those types of questions, uh, you can ask him about knife profiles, axes, machetes, you name it. If it's a cutting implement, he's your guy. Um, I'm sure he'd even take questions on specific knives that aren't his knives. I'm, I'm sure he's not going to just say, oh, I'll only talk about my own knives. Like a question on a pattern or somebody else's manufactured knife or something like that. I'm sure he'd answer it and be fair with his answer. Uh, and I'd love to have him permanently, but I can't do it unless I get enough questions. And then I have a question for me on the stone-cold reality of owning real estate as a landlord. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. Guys, right now, do you know I have personally about 100 trees, vines, and bushes from Bob Wells Nursery on my property? Over time, they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great, too. Bob Wells is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1994, and I, I've been, as we've uh, like crossed about 1986, giving you a little bit of my history uh, as we've gone on. And uh, this would be the year that I would call... Jack Spirigo fully returned to America and, and what was going on in America and what was going on around the world. Because for three years I'd lived in mostly a cocoon. I got out of the Army in, uh, in the summer of 1993. Then I took a walk on the Appalachian Trail. I was gone for three months. I came down to Texas around September and uh, 
kind of put my life together down here. And uh, by 1994, I had a job working for MCI. I was traveling, um, and I was paying attention. You know, I was in my truck for a lot of hours traveling for my job with MCI. I would drive to New Orleans, San Antonio, El Paso, um, Austin, Houston were the areas that I covered. Like everywhere in Texas and Louisiana except Dallas. It, it just was kind of ironic. Um, so I had a lot of time listening to talk radio and stuff like that, started tuning into the news again. And so the stuff we're going to talk about today, I kind of have more of a memory of than the stuff that we talked about for the last three episodes. So anyway, what do we have today? We have one from Alex Shrug, The Murder of Nicole and the Leftist Support of O.J. Simpson, contributed by Alex Shrug. I really recommend you read that one because it's it's quite informative. Uh, and something I didn't know about that whole incident. Uh, there is also the Cave of the Patriarchs Massacre, contributed by Southpaw Ben. I'm going to read that because it's the one that most uh, is most relevant to your potential survival at some point in the future. Uh, I have the Assault Weapons Ban is now the law, which many of us remember the history of that, and it was a disaster, and you can read about that. I want some Alex Shrug. Notable births this year, Dakota Fanning, Joe Del Furland, Alexander Gould, who was the voice of Nemo in Finding Nemo, and Justin Bieber. Of Justin Bieber, this is what Alex Shrug says. Canadian singer and drunken lout, best known to me as publicly pissing into a mop bucket while insulting Bill Clinton. Overall, a net plus in my book. In other words, probably the best thing he's ever done. I would have to agree. And I can tell you I've got uh, John Adams' songs lined up for quite a few years into the future, and I do not yet have a Justin Bieber song, and I'm not going to get one because I'm not going to play it if I do. Uh, this year in film, Disney's The Lion King, The Circle of Life, True Lies, that was with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Forrest Gump, I loved Forrest Gump. I remember going to see that in the movie theater with some really good friends I'd made in Texas. Star Trek, Star Trek Generations, the pass-off from the original Star Trek cast to the next generation. I remember seeing the premiere of that, not for the nation, but the premiere of it in New Orleans, Louisiana, with a buddy I'd met from MCI named Lance. And we were working really long hours, and we managed to get away to go see the premiere. And I remember we got there, and there were all kinds of people doing the cosplay thing before cosplay was really a thing like it is now. And uh, we were just there normal as ourselves, and uh, we had a blast. And in New Orleans, um, they're a little more free with the alcohol. I remember we got big old, I mean like big gulp-sized daiquiris. They had daiquiri machines on the wall at the, the theater, and these were real daiquiris. Um, it was uh, a unique experience for me, I think, because I had never been to a place where you could order a daiquiri slushy at a freaking movie theater. Uh, for Christmas, we had Miracle on 34th Street. And the Santa Claus, which is hilarious. Love the Santa Claus. Santa Claus 2 and 3 sucked, by the way. And The Mask, Speed, Stargate, and IQ, a sweet romantic comedy about a car mechanic who impersonates a physicist to make time with Albert Einstein's niece. I might have to look. I've never seen that movie. Didn't know it existed. I might have to check that one out. Speed sucked. I remember that thing was in the discount bins of DVDs all over the, the supermarkets in like a week. Uh, this year in TV, ER came out. Uh, written by Michael Crichton. I didn't know that. I had no idea Michael Crichton, of course, who's written other really great things, uh, wrote that. Friends, uh, which probably became the most uh, most successful sitcom of all time. Uh, not my favorite thing, but I, I can enjoy it. My wife likes it. I'll put it to you that way. Touched by an Angel, my wife loved that. 
Madonna erupts into profanity on Late Night with David Letterman this year. It will be the highest-rated show of his career and most censored. And Martin Lawrence almost halts the SNL season and all future employment of the cast. He makes a sexually explicit joke about female genitalia. Always a big laugh-getter, I suppose, says Alex Shrugged. This year in music, I Swear came out by All for One. It's a cover. It's a, you remember I said this is the era of covers? This is a cover that happened like in a year. Uh, and I'll just say who it's a cover from because, well, he's here too. Elvis and Andy by Confederate Railroad. She ain't a southern belle, but it's hard to tell. She's got every quality. She's like Elvis. She's like Andy, so she's fine and dandy with me. Um, and then Be My Baby Tonight by John Michael Montgomery. And uh, Alex says, unless you look like Mr. Montgomery, this is a guarantee to get you a slap in the face. Um, John Michael Montgomery is the guy that did the song, I swear, originally, and it was not very long after that, maybe a year or two, that All for One covered it. Like I said, the 90s were the era of cover songs. Uh, and Te Tejano singer Selena wins a Grammy. She will be shot next year by her agent after confronting, with him, confronting him with his financial fraud. With her last breath, she will name her killer Sendavara. She will be 23 forever. All right, let's go ahead and, uh, well, I want to read just one thing because I want to be fair to somebody. I don't really like Al Gore. Uh, in other news, one of the bullet points is... Um, Vice President Al Gore invents the Internet. To be fair, up to this point, the Internet has been an ad hoc, so he has been working hard to formalize the system. His work is vital in making the Internet what it is today, but he didn't invent it. <laughs> no. Alex shrugged. Oh, also, this is another one that we should actually look at. Comet Shoemaker Levy 9 hits Jupiter this year. I think a lot of people remember that. 21 large fragments beat the tar out of the planet, which makes people wonder if there's a planet killer with Earth's name on it. The answer to that question is sure there is. It's just a matter of how long. could be a billion years. could be next year. We just don't know. Not something to worry about. Not something to prep for because we get hit by a comet. All of our troubles are over. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm going to read Cave of the Patriarch's Massacre. Because when I was reading it, I immediately jumped to the same thing that Southpaw Ben has as his take. On February 25th, during the Jewish holiday of Purim, Uh, in the Muslim holiday of Ramadan, a man in his IDF reserve officer uniform walked into a room in the Abraham, I'm probably saying that wrong, Abrahimi Mosque at the Cave of the Patriarchs and opened fire. During this massacre, 29 people were killed, 125 were wounded, before the survivors threw a fire extinguisher that hit him in the head, allowing them to disarm him and beat the shooter to death. The man was Barsh Goldstein, an Israeli-American physician who was extremely anti-Arab to the point where he refused medical care to Arabs, including his fellow members of the IDF. I think people don't know that. There are Arab members of the IDF, which is the Israeli Defense Force. He also believed the Israeli democracy was as bad as a German Germany during Nazism and would often be seen wearing a yellow Star of David with the word Jude written on it. Most of the Jewish community, including the Israeli Prime Minister at the time, Yitzhak Rabin, denounced the attack and described Goldstein as a degenerate murderer and, quote, a shame on Zionism and the embarrassment to Judaism, end quote. Despite this, some Jewish extremists venerate Goldstein as a martyr to this day and visited his grave to celebrate his heinous act until 1999, when it was dismantled by the IDF after the passing of Israeli legislation that outlawed any monuments to terrorists. 
On, on April 2nd, uh, suicide bombings were carried out by Hamas in retaliation for this event, and Hamas policy changed to allowing targeting of civilians as a direct response to this attack. That's something the history books don't tell you. My take by uh, Southpaw Ben. When I first read about this incident, I immediately thought of the Orlando nightclub shooting, as both consisted of a single shooter going into a confined area and opening fire on a large crowd. However, when we look at the reactions of the participants, we see two completely different responses. In the cave of the Patriarch's Massacre, we see victims fighting back and eventually killing the attacker. This sharply contrasts with how the patrons of the Pulse nightclub cowered in hidden response. While I can't say anything for sure, I feel like any resistance in the face of certain death is better than cowering and accepting one's fate. We can also see this during the 9-11 attacks when the three planes were able to hit their targets and cause massive casualties. Passengers on Flight 93 were able to prevent this, though it was at the cost of the lives of everyone on that plane. Okay, this makes me think of my military training. And even when you're something like a mechanic, which is what I was, they do teach you basic combat training. And if you're in a good unit, which I was, you continue to advance in your basic combat training, uh, even at your permanent duty station. And one of the things you learn about is setting up ambushes. And the other thing that you learn about when you learn about setting up ambushes is what happens when you walk into an ambush. Especially what you call an L-shaped ambush, where you have basically an L-shaped formation and you approximately know the approach the enemy's going to take. And when the enemy gets into that, you have them what's called a kill box. And you open up on them with interlocking fields of fire and you pretty much are going to kill, especially with claymores out and stuff like that, you're going to kill everybody in there. And they tell you you never want to walk into an ambush, but if you do, do you know what you do? If you know it's an ambush, you know it's an L-shape, you know you're in the kill box... You attack the enemy directly. You charge the enemy's position. Because retreating, getting down, taking cover will not work in that situation. That doesn't mean every time you take fire you start charging at somebody with a gun. I'm talking about being caught in ambush. Well, if you're in a, in a, a restaurant like a Luby's Cafeteria, we talked about yesterday, or a mosque, or a church, or a nightclub, or a store, or a school, and someone walks in, and everybody's unarmed except that one person, and there's walls and containment, you're in an ambush. It's the exact same thing. The reality, though, is you have a greater chance of survival if you know five or six people will come along and take the risk than you do in that L-shaped ambush in an infantry situation. Because there's only one shooter. There's only one shooter, and they're not expecting that response. The, the thing is, it's easy to say it's hard to do. I'd like to believe that's what I would do that I would, I would assess the situation if I wasn't taken out immediately and figure out an avenue of attack that gave me the greatest probability of getting to him before he shot me. But I'll tell you the instinct you have when you hear somebody shooting at you. Get down, take cover, and hide. And that's, that's actually a survival instinct. It's not necessarily wrong. But once you know the situation you're in, you have to start moving. I believe run, hide, fight is the way to stay alive in these situations. And sometimes there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. And if you're hiding, you should be preparing to fight. You should be using the, hide, the hiding spot as your own ambush position. The government has put out a little bit of a mantra on that, but they're not really teaching people that because the government's never big on teaching people to take care of themselves because they always want you to believe they're the ones. Call a cop. Well, what did a cop do for anybody in all these shootings? What did gun bans do for anybody in all these shootings? The only thing that's ever worked is people fighting back, and it's the only thing that ever will work. When we disarm people... Read the assault weapons ban from this segment. We just make that harder. But you might be somewhere and just not be armed for one reason or another anyway. 
You still have to fight back. You have to fight back with whatever you have. And a fire extinguisher to the head does a damn good job of shutting somebody down. Hey, folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you, I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But, of course, you know me. I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 uh, donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment, and we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. And with that, I have a question for Old Doc Bones on traveling to the tropics and concerns about Zika virus and more than anything else, bringing it back and, and passing it on to somebody else who is uh, pregnant and having a child. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net. Now with over 900 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the brand new 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Kay from Australia, who writes, My question is about Zika virus and the possibility of passing it to a pregnant woman after coming back from the tropics. I'm on my way back from New Caledonia and Vanuatu. Ooh, very nice. I made sure my family all used 80% DEET insect repellent, and apart from being tired and a bit of seasickness, we all seem fine. When we get home, should we stay away from my seven-month-old pregnant sister, my seven-month pregnant sister, not my seven-month-old pregnant sister, for a period of time? I understand you can have it without symptoms. I want to know how long it stays in your system. Most of the websites seem, seem to say it's okay to get pregnant after 28 days, but they don't say if we can pass it to others, especially pregnant women, unknowingly. Should we all go get a Zika virus test just to be sure? Is there such a thing? I live in Queensland, Australia, and there have been a few cases of people having Zika after traveling, but no reports of mosquito transmission. Hi, Kay. Indeed, Zika virus has been found in more than 75 countries, mostly from travelers to epidemic zones in tropical regions like South America and Africa. Zika virus is primarily passed by mosquitoes, but also can be transmitted through sexual intercourse and blood transfusion. Casual contact that doesn't involve bodily fluids shouldn't be an issue. The Zika virus lasts a week or so in the bloodstream, but longer in certain organs like the testicles. As a result, the main time restriction is for sexual intercourse on the part of the man, six months or more recommended by the CDC. For women, eight weeks after an exposure is considered sufficient time to wait. Zika tests were originally only available in U.S. state labs and the National Institute of Health and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now they are offered widely throughout the country and probably in Australia as well. The test is called the RT-PCR. Also, IgM studies, antibody studies, can identify certain antibodies in people who previously had the virus. 
Zika virus is certainly a concern, especially for pregnant women, but it looks like at the present time, the virus has not mutated to the point where it is affecting a major percentage of unborn infants. As such, I think your sister is going to be okay, Kay. This is Joe Alden, MD, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Hey, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Get 10% off anything in the store if you use the code for Member Support Brigade subscribers. Let me just say that I think if you're traveling to a place where Zika has been known to be a problem, uh, specifically where things are kind of going on at the current time where it's, it's active, uh, precautions are reasonable. And thinking about, is this really the place that I want to go is reasonable too. But just the tropics in general, just anywhere where it could be, um, it, it's pretty low on my list of concerns. Standing around the United States of America today, on my little farm in Texas, I could make a list of a thousand things that concern me. And 1,001, I still wouldn't get to Zika. It's, it's just, I, I just don't believe that it's a, a huge concern. I'm not saying that it couldn't be a concern. And, and I'll tell you, when Bones came out with the Zika book, I was like, damn it, dude, you're just capitalizing on hysteria. Until I read it, it, it's basically a good pandemic preparedness book that uses Zika as an example, and that's why I like it. Because I was, I was like, dude, I can't believe you're doing this. You know, you're just riding some hype. Because it's like, it's not going to be sustainable. It's not going to last long enough in the hype for it to go anywhere. So uh, I think it's actually a damn good book, and uh, you did a good job on it. Next up, I have a question for Gary Collins on concealed carry. You know, when you're working out or running or something like that, you're wearing less clothing, you're being physically active. It can be an issue. So, Gary, uh, I know you're a concealed carry holder yourself. How do you handle that issue? Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins of PrimalPowerMethod.com, answering all your primal and paleo and health and wellness questions, off the grid, firearms, you name it. Um, Make sure to go check out my new book, Going Off the Grid. It's doing really, really well. Got some great feedback and also my new podcast, Old Dudes, New Tricks. Uh, today's question is a good one. I've dealt with it. I'm trying to conceal carry while at the gym or running or working out or doing outdoor activities. And I'll be honest with you, it's very, very difficult. And I've tried multiple concepts over the years. Um, I've had, you know, ankle holsters. You know, inside the belt holsters, uh, shoulder holsters, or uh, they're, they call them shoulder holsters, but none of them really work well. When I'm outdoors, if I'm mountain biking primarily or outside, I just wear baggy uh, cargo shorts, and I use a Kramer holster, which uh, I've been using for, gosh, decades now. They're out of they're in Washington State. I want to say Tacoma, if I remember right. Um, but it's KramerLeather.com or maybe Kramer Holsters Leather. But I, I believe it's KramerLeather.com. Uh, great holsters, super light. Get the horse hide ones. They are amazing, super light, form-fitting, great holsters. The downside is it's a holster. It fits inside, you know, it's a belt loop holster. But I use that. That's what I use because it fits so well. Um, it, when it comes to the gym, the only thing I've ever really had any luck with is I just wear a fanny pack. It's what we did back in the day on protection and stuff. If we had a, you know, had a uh, protectee that was either wanted to work out and we'd be working out with them or in the gym and gym clothes or out 
you know, if they wanted to go for a run or whatever. And what I would do is I would just put it to my back instead of carrying the fanny pack forward towards your waist. Um, I would f- push it around and I would just use it to my back. Uh, that's about the best advice I can give on that. There are some products out there. I have never used them. I've done a ton of research on it. I just, none of them look comfortable to me or look very practical. Either the gun's really, really hard to get to, or it's just going to rub you raw and it's, it's just going to be form fitting. The best company I've found is Undertech. They're pretty well known. They make, uh, they're probably the biggest as far as undergarment holsters. And they're all based on, you know, stretch clothing with a holster in it. You can try that. The downside to that stuff is if you sweat, and I do, I wear my, I conceal carry uh, in Washington all the time, even when I'm working on the house and doing stuff. The problem is with those two is you got to remember, you're going to sweat through and it's going to get into your guns. So you're going to be cleaning that thing all the time. So I wish someone would make a porcelain barreled gun, you know, for with non-rusting and plastic parts. All the way through, that would be really cool um, if someone could ever figure out how to make a non-rusting weapon like that. I'm sure it's out there. Maybe there is. I just never have seen it. But I hope that helps. Uh, again, guys, if you have any more questions, uh, put them in the comments section or shoot them to Jack. Thanks a lot. I, I guess my additions with that one would be that one of the biggest things I think people need to do when you, you're changing your situation from your day-to-day to something that's, that's dramatically different. So most of us don't walk around in a tank top and, you know, really lightweight shorts, uh, which might be something you're working out or running in uh, on a daily basis. And when we walk around, we're not sweating a lot. We're not jumping. We're not doing weightlifting or running or, or what have you for sustained periods purely for the purpose of, of, of improving our health. Like when we do that, we've gone into a different mode. So with that in mind, that means often that the gun that you carry day-to-day on you all the time may not be the gun to carry with you in that situation. And considering something like a Taurus Curve, uh, a kel PF9, um, what's the Keltec 380? Keltec, um, can't think of it right now. Uh, the, the, the 3AT, the P3AT, right? The, which is a really compact, uh, handgun. Very, very lightweight. I think the, 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 the P3AT, uh, comes in at something like eight ounces or something like that. Um, these smaller frame guns are not the most ideal thing, but I would rather, and I've said this before, have less gun and have a gun than, than, than demand having, you know, more gun and not have a gun at all. And you guys know me. I, I'm not a, a, you know, a, a mouse gun guy. I, I'm a big fan of the 1911, uh, with a 45 ACP. That's kind of my, my go-to, the thing that I love more than anything else. Though I've become a pretty big fan of the SIG 239 and 40 cal, uh, as well. But those those types of guns don't carry as you know as easily, and things like the Taurus Curve open up a whole new world. If you've never seen the Taurus Curve before, take a look at it, because it's not going to print like a gun. It's got a clip on it, so it's something that you can carry in a pocket. Now you've got to think, or in a waistband or something like that. You got to think about what you're doing and how it fits in, and does it cause brandishing, and is it going to cause a problem if you're at the gym or whatever. But if you do things the right way, those types of things 
become much more advantageous. My problem always with Fanny Pack has been it, it kind of telegraphs things. Like when you see somebody, like a guy, you know, jogging in a park with a fanny pack, you don't think, oh, look at the weenie with a fanny pack. You're like, that dude's packing. And it kind of gives that away. But if you have no other alternative, it's probably the best one. Um, you know, it's just one of the big things that we got here in Texas recently is open carry. And what you've noticed since they passed open carry is very few people doing it. And, and it, it almost was more of an issue that people were being accused of brandishing because they were in, let's say, a convenience store and they asked a the guy for a change for a 20 and they leaned over a certain way and the guy saw the gun print and he said, I felt threatened, I thought he wanted money on the cash register, they called the cops and stuff like that. All the dude wanted was change for the 20 so he could go put air in his tires or something like that. You know, and uh, so by having open carry legislation, it's completely done away with the whole concept that, you know, if, if, if you're concealed carrying and your weapon is visible, now you're brandishing. I don't think I've seen anybody in the city open carrying. Um, it does open it for demonstrations and stuff like that, or in situations where you might want to provide visible security. I think that's a good thing, too. But you don't see people open carrying, and why not? Because it's better that you don't know that I have a gun if you mean to do me harm. Because the stuff we talked about in the history segment, if I'm a mass murderer and I walk into a nightclub or a you know, uh, uh, any kind of a building, a school, whatever, and I see somebody with a gun on their hip, who do you think I'm shooting first? You know, and I'm not, I'm not just going to shoot them first. I'm going to shoot them first. I'm going to move in on them so somebody can't pick their gun up and use it away against me. I'm going to move into that area and I'm going I'm to wall off that. I'm going to start shooting people if I'm, if I'm a sicko that wants to kill people. And so it's much better that, you know, when that happens, you're not the first shot and you have an opportunity to return fire. And I'd rather return fire with a Caltech. P, uh, P9 or a P3AT or a, 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 a curve or something like that, then, then return fire with a fire extinguisher. Just just to be blunt. Just just my thoughts on that one. And I just want people to keep open-minded the possibility that it might make sense to downsize a gun at times. Because a lot of people today just don't seem like they, they're willing to even consider that as an option. Uh, next up, I have a question for Ben Falk on perennials for erosion control in the Ozarks. Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Uh, taking any and all questions related to coal climate, food production, homesteading, permaculture, um, small-scale food production, building systems, heating systems, um, land planning, site design, and related. Um, so I've got a question about the um, trees and shrubs good for erosion control and, f and food production in Zone 7 in the Ozarks, which probably gets quite hot. Um, so, I mean, most trees and shrubs are going to be pretty good for steep slopes and erosion control. That's kind of true with all perennials. So you've got, you know, dozens and dozens of options. Um, if you want you know, food crop out of it as well, really, um, I would take a look at your general bioregion and see what does really well there. Um, I hate to say it, but sea berry is, is very good for erosion control because it's pretty vigorous um, and deeply rooting and just kind of holds the slope really well and has been used for that in the past, especially in China, and probably does really well in Zone 7. But there's many other plants that would do it as well. So I don't want to don't want to give you the thought that that's 
in any way the only one. Um, but really, you know, I hate to kind of defer the question, but really you want to look at the local area because your local bioregion is going to have in evidence what, at least what families and, and genus, uh, genera of, of, of plants are doing well in those soils in that particular climate. And I have really not spent any time in the Ozarks, so I can't, uh, can't offer you uh, you know, specific species recommendations for that. Um, you, you, you know, you're best finding that out from the local landscape. And Jack probably knows that area pretty well too. So maybe he has some thoughts anyway. Good luck. Um, and that's great that you're not doing, trying to do annuals on a uh, 20 degree slope. That is, that is pretty steep for sure. Thanks a lot. Well, I, I think the reality is like what Ben just said is, is the most important thing is it doesn't matter. Like, whatever you plant, if it's a bush, a sizable bush or a tree, and it gets good roots into the ground, it's going to help reduce erosion. So, you can grow whatever you want. You can grow apples in that, and gee, Arkansas black in the Ozarks, who would have thought? I mean, that would be a, a one apple to look at. Um, if you just wanted a thicket to stop this stuff, and you wanted to produce something edible, autumn olive would work fantastic in your climate. It works here, it works where Ben is, it works everywhere. Uh, of course, people call it invasive, but well, you can you can believe what you want with that. Um, in the end, uh, it's it's a, a beneficial plant. the The key that I have to kind of point out to you here is if you're going to have erosion control and food production, well, you have to have a way to access it. A 20 degree slope is pretty daggone steep, and if you have a bunch of trees and bushes growing in a thicket like forest like environment on a 20-degree slope, access to anything is going to be difficult. So you really need to think about, do you want to do some, some basic uh, terracing or basically what would amount to like swale-like terraces, uh, something like we did at Permaethos. We were on about the same slope, and what we did was take a two-bottom plow, and uh, you can you can tow a tractor laterally across a 20-degree uh, slope. At least the tractor we had, you could. You better know what you're doing. You better know that's 20 degrees because 20 degrees and – 30 degrees, 40 degrees, it's a lot different, and a lot of times people are wrong about what their slope is. So you better make, make sure you're not exceeding the, the slope of the machine's capability. But we did that there, and that was at least a 20-degree slope. And uh, we put in, basically, we just did a single furrow, brought the tractor back around and did it again. And these are like, you know, half-mile long, uh, these, these, uh, these terraces. Cleaned them up with some student labor, used a, you know some shovels and, and hose and rakes and stuff like that to clean it up a little bit and make it a proper terrace and planted our trees into those. And you could just keep walking down. And then you see you're doing two things to stop the erosion. You're putting in these, these terraces that slow down and pacify the water. And you need to think about how you discharge that water. And then the other thing you're doing is you're putting the trees in for the roots. Well, you're also, what you're also doing is, is we're planting the trees on the little berm because this is a much smaller swale-like feature than you typically think of. You're talking about something about as wide as a sidewalk that you can walk in. That's a flat, it's a flat bottom surface and a little lump. You plant your trees there. Well, now you got a little walkway that you can walk in. If you just wanted to stabilize the slope, and you just didn't, you know, like, if you're willing to say this is not going to be productive land, black locust. We had a very steep cutout bank at the farm in West Virginia. I think it was more on the neighborhood of 35 degrees, and it was completely bare dirt. 
And we got, you know, cheap black locusts from the West Virginia State Nursery for like, I think it was like 20 cents a tree or something by the time we bought in volume. And they planted several hundred of them. I mean, they were a foot apart. It's like a giant locust thicket up there, and that thing stabilized. It ain't going nowhere. So you got you to really decide what you really want out of what you really want to put into it. But the easiest thing that will grow and proliferate and prevent erosion, that will be thicket-like, that you could still just kind of wander in there and pick stuff out of, it'd be autumn olive. I mean, that, that would be it. And, and the you know ironclad, it's not going anywhere, and it will grow, and it will grow fast, and you'll have firewood for the rest of your life, would be black locust. Don't even think about doing it with honey locust, you'll hate yourself. Um, and black locusts do produce a very small yield for you every year. Uh, you can pick the white blossoms, and they taste like nothing. Then they taste like sweet, and then they taste like pea. They go really good in salads. Uh, let's take another one. This one is for Charles, a.k.a. the Hummel Mechanic on the Ford 5.4 liter V8 engine. Charles, take it away. What's up, TSP? Hey, it's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com answering your car-related questions. This one comes from Jason, and he is looking for a used truck. And he says, when looking for a used truck, he's been told to stay away from the Ford 5.4 liter V8 as it's prone to mechanical issues. Is there any validity to this claim, and what are some things to consider when looking at a used truck? Jason, great question. So uh, whenever I read the, this car has all of these problems, or this truck has all of these problems, the first thing I think is, thanks, Internet, you did a great job. One thing to always consider whenever you're researching common problems on a vehicle is that the negative voices are always the loudest. We don't search is the 5.4 liter perfect or what's great about the 5.4 liter, right? We search 5.4 liter problems, 5.4 liter pattern failures, 5.4 liter common issues. So just keep in mind that whenever you're searching to find whether a product's good or bad, almost always the negatives pop up first in your Google search. It's also important to make sure that we're pointing to the right generation of engine in the case of the 5.4, there's a two-valve and a three-valve version that came in the trucks. So we want to make sure that when we're researching, we're looking at the correct one. As you guys may know, I was a Volkswagen technician for many, many, many years. And I can relate that to there's a generation of two-liter turbo from 06 to 08. That was a totally different engine from the one from actually 08 and a half on forward. And when you research the problems, you find that they both have a bunch of problems but they're very different in nature. So Jason, make sure that when you're doing this research, you're researching the truck that you're looking at, not just the overall scope of the problems of the 5.4, because you're gonna end up with those problems combined and end up researching what will appear to be the worst engine ever built. Now, what I did is I actually reached out to a friend of mine that is a Ford technician. This is actually a young man that I did a lot of mentoring. He moved on to other things and now is a Ford truck technician. Oddly enough, the day I sent him the message, he had a Ford 5.4 liter in his bay working on one of those mechanical problems. You're really not going to get better insight than a man working on the exact car that I'm asking about. He said these engines are really reliable. There are a couple of hiccups and a couple of things that you probably want to be aware of. Spark plug failure, threading failure on these engines is super common. They have a really weird spark plug design with a long thread 
and then a long piece that sticks out past the threaded portion, and those do tend to break. There are actually special tools to make those repairs and to extract those spark plugs, and I'm pretty sure if you searched how to remove 5.4 liter V8 spark plugs from a Ford, you find a ton of threads with guys that have figured out the tricks on how to get these spark plugs out without breaking them. One thing about professional technicians is they're gonna find the easiest, fastest way to do the job correctly so that they don't have to spend hours extracting spark plugs. He did say that there are some that can have timing chain issues. Generally, it's wear in the chain or the tensioner. This can lead to rocker arm failure and actually cause damage to the camshaft. This is probably the mechanical failure that you found in your research. He also said that ignition coils tend to fail, which I've actually replaced a handful on these engines. And honestly, in the car world, ignition coil failure is not that uncommon across many brands. So most importantly though, I asked him, what do you do to keep one of these engines happy? And how the failure of the one in his bay at the day that I text him happened. And he said the key to keeping it happy is maintain the car. You know, that little book that all cars come with that tell you exactly how to maintain that? Follow that book. The correct oil, the correct oil change interval. Replace the spark plugs when they're supposed to be replaced. Good quality fuel. Keeping up with your maintenance is the easiest, most basic way to keep an engine happy and to be able to go that really, really long, long life that we want to get out of our engines. He did say that there are also a handful of variable valve timing failures. And in my research, I found that the cam phasers or cam adjusters were also somewhat problematic. But when it comes to cam phaser failure or cam adjuster failure, using the wrong oil, not changing it when you're supposed to, the wrong viscosity oil can cause that problem. He said that 2009 seems to be the happiest year of that engine. And I'm sure like any other car on the road, there's a handful of other pattern failures or common problems with this engine. So Jason, I hope that clears up a little bit on the engine portion of the 5.4 liter Ford. When it comes to looking at a used truck, first you gotta make sure you're getting the right truck for you. Do you need a half ton, three quarter ton, full ton? What do you need? What is the truck for? Make sure you're buying the truck that you need, not you know a Ford Ranger when you need an F-350. Next, it's gonna be the same on just about every car. We want to evaluate the vehicle individually. We've already done the research to see all the really common stuff that happens on the car. So now we wanna take a look at that one specifically. We wanna take it and pay the 100, 120 bucks to have the professional look at it, very much like the salvage title car question that I answered for you guys last time. It's worth the money every time. I've seen so many people get burned by not doing this. I can't tell you guys enough. Make sure you get these cars inspected. We wanna look at tires, we wanna look at brakes, belts, hoses. Uh, if you can find a vehicle with maintenance history, proving that they've used the correct oil, and at the right interval, that's usually worth paying a little bit more for because you know the car was maintained properly. If you ran the Carfax like we talked about, you can actually take the VIN and call your local dealership and see if they have any maintenance history, see if they can check the manufacturer history for any type of major repairs. If they don't have any history, call the next dealership over, and then the next one, and the next one, and see if you can find the dealership that the vehicle was maintained at or the shop that it was maintained at because then if, even if they don't have the records you at least have some documentation of what repairs were performed when they were done and how much the previous owner really did care about that truck if i were going to buy a new truck after i found it and did all my due diligence on 
Carfax and pre-purchase inspection and checking it out myself, make sure that, you know, I pull the oil cap off and there's not globs of sludge in there. I'm going to change all the fluids out. I'm going to do an oil change. I'm going to do a brake fluid service. That's one that a lot of people really do miss is the brake fluid service. I'm going to do a trans service. I'm going to service the diffs and the transfer case if that's, you know, any separate fluids there. And I'm going to get all fresh juices, as I like to say, in this vehicle. That way now you know you have your starting point, you have your baseline, you know when the next one's due. You know the next oil change is due at, you know, four, five, six thousand miles whenever the interval is. Trans service is due at another 40,000 miles or whatever the interval is. Again, follow that book that magical book that all cars come with. Uh, it tells you exactly what the car wants. Sadly, that book almost always gets left in the glove box only to be shuffled around when you're trying to find your sunglasses. So Jason, I hope that helps. I don't want to scare you off the 5.4 from the information that I've got and the research I've done. It seems like it's a pretty good engine. It won in the early 2000s, one of Ward's top 10 engines. So that says a lot about the quality of it. Again, the negative voices are typically the loudest. I've seen complaints about the brand that I worked for for years and years and years and thought, I've never seen this. I've never heard of this happening. This is a very, very low failure rate. And I knew a lot of other techs across the country that had never seen these problems either. So with that, TSP, thank you guys so much for having me on the Expert Council. Keep the car questions coming. Also, I'm taking these clips and putting them on YouTube if you want to check that out. This one in particular, I would probably check out because my buddy Taylor actually sent me some pictures of what these failures look like so you can see exactly what I'm talking about to add a little value to the video instead of just watching me talk. So if you want to see more of my videos, don't forget to head over to HumbleMechanic.com. You can also follow me on all the normal social platforms, including YouTube. Just search Humble Mechanic and you guys will find me over there. TSP and Jack, thank you guys so much. Have a great weekend. Well, when you listen to him, you can see why he's become successful in a few years and has been able to make this a full-time profession. And I just want to say that I am... Uh, unbelievably grateful and I feel incredibly blessed to have um, Charles with us here on TSP. And a great job there. And, and I agree that one of the big things that we should all do when we're looking for any vehicle is be very clear about what we expect out of that vehicle and we're, lo we're looking for that vehicle to do for us. And uh, if I could throw out a word here for not always having to do your own maintenance, from everything I just heard there, If for any reason I ever bought one of these 5.4 liter Ford motors, when it came time to change the plugs, guess where it's going? It's going to the Ford house, and they can do it. And if they break it, they broke something they wasn't supposed to break, and they can fix it, and it ain't going to cost me any extra money because they should have done it right. And since they have the exact right tools to do it, um, they can do it right the first time. Now, I know what you're thinking. Of all the things that you do on a vehicle, Jack, changing spark plugs is pretty daggone easy. It's something that every boy should learn from his dad how to do. I completely agree. But most spark plugs, you throw a spark plug wrench on them, zip, 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 zap, 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 out comes a plug, set the gap, put the new one in, stick the wire back on it, go on about your damn way. Well, if you're going to tell me that these things have a habit of breaking, I'm going to let the people that are supposed to do it, do it. And if they break it, they broke it, and it was their fault. And they're going to have to fix it with no additional charges to me. So I think it's a really great idea when you find these stories about, you know, so-and-so motor has a problem or whatever. Find out what those things are. And a lot of times the solution to those are, are maintenance or just knowing there's certain things that would be better that you didn't do. 
when it comes to maintenance on your vehicle. Just just my thoughts. Next up, I have a question for Darby Simpson on finding some chickens dead. What do you do with them? Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I've got a question from Corey, and uh, it's one of the more unique questions I've had on the Survival Podcast, uh, and there's there's actually a lot to get into here. Um, Corey raised some broiler birds, uh, meat chickens, uh, for home consumption. He raised 25 of them, and he started having some problems, and kind of his, his big question was, uh, you know, is it okay to, to eat a Cornish Cross chicken who seems to be having heart problems? And uh, Corey in his email stated that, you know, he would consider any suggestions to be, uh, quote unquote, for entertainment and not as dietary advice, end quote. Thank you, Corey. I'm not a uh, <laughs> not a not a biology guy, uh, so I can't can't really tell you if it's you know safe to eat without seeing it and smelling it and all that good stuff. Um, I think that the, the general answer is that, yeah, you know, look, if a chicken just has a heart attack. And you, you process it immediately. Um, and I, I'm sure that Jack's going to have something to add to this. But so long as, you know, it's otherwise healthy, it just has a heart attack, and you process immediately, it's not laying around for a long time, it, it's probably safe to eat. You need to use your own best judgment. Again, I'm not a, a professional uh, veterinarian or anything, so, I, you know, I can't, can't really say for sure, but um, most likely it's okay. Now, there is one condition out there that you you may have had. Now, based on the rest of your email, I'm not sure you did, but it's called ascites. And, and, and basically what that is is where the, these – we see this a lot in these fast-growing meat birds – is that basically you get this big buildup of fluid on, on the chest cavity. And um, that's basically caused from, from growing so rapidly. Um, now, what I can tell you is that if – I take a, a group of broilers to my state-inspected processor, and any of them have that fluid buildup on their chest cavity, the state inspector strikes them, and they are they're not even they don't even finish processing them. They they basically just toss them out. I'm not certain what the concern is there from a health standpoint. Maybe they're being a bit overzealous. I mean, you know, that is a, a state inspected for retail. Uh, you know, uh, the state of Indiana has given it its blessing for another human being to consume it. So the standards are certainly different and more regulated uh, than what it would be for, for a backyard homesteader. Um, but if you have that going on, I, I would say do more research, and I, I would tend to say – Maybe you don't want to consume that particular chicken. But what you had put in your email leads me to think that you've got some other things going on. So I realize your question was, is this safe to eat? But I kind of want to get down to the heart of the issue. And what you say here is that you notice that one of your birds is kind of laying around and having trouble picking up its head and that the color of its, of its comb, um, and, and skin looked kind of purplish. And what that, tells me is that that chicken is really stressed. It's not drinking enough fluid. That comb should be bright red. And if it gets purple, then they're having some issues breathing uh, and, and or they're just not getting enough water. You tend to see this on really hot days where it's so hot the chickens don't want to move around. Um, I, I, I didn't see that you put, you know, what part of the country you're in here. 
If it's really hot outside, you got to obviously make sure they've got access to water or something else. A lot of people make a mistake of is they put these chickens in grass that's way too tall. If that grass is is above the height of that chicken's head when it's when it's standing and and really even like when it's sitting down and it's hot outside, man, you're begging for a disaster. They're just going to get really hot. They can't cool off uh, when the grass is that thick um, because they're a fast-growing meat chicken. Now that's not necessarily the same for a laying hen, but that's a <laughs> no pun intended, totally different animal. So. Anyway, um, it, it looks like you, you know you had that issue uh, with a couple of other birds, and you know you mentioned at the end of your email you kind of beat me to the punch that you just had them on full feed, and you, you started going to you know twelve hours on, twelve hours off. That's a good thing to do when you start seeing these issues. If you start seeing a lot of heart, heart attacks, take the food away at night, put it in there from say you know seven a.m. to seven p.m. and then take it away, put it back in there the next day. You might have had the protein a little bit too high on pasture. If it's much above 18%, 19%, and you've got a true quick-growing Cornish cross strain, that's too high. Um, it really needs to be dialed back a little bit. So I, I think you had a few other things going on there from a management standpoint. There's a whole lot to learn with chicken. People think chicken's easy. <laughs> If you think it's really easy and you go and do it once, well, either you're a genius or you kind of got lucky. And that's kind of like the first time I did it. I kind of got lucky and I thought it was really easy. There's a lot to learn, a lot of little nuances with these birds that are meant to be raised in a confinement application. And we're trying to stick them out on pasture where there's all these elements that they really weren't designed to deal with. So, um, and then you also mentioned that you had one that was kind of sneezing. It's possible that that, that bird basically had a cold. Um, you, you mentioned you had read that, you know, any chicken that sneezes, you know, uh, according to what you read on the, the internet, it, the whole flock has the avian flu and you got to destroy them all. I don't think that's the case. Um, but again, you got to be careful. Um, I mean, if that bird does have something else going on and it's truly sick, you don't want to eat that animal. It's just not worth it. It's just not worth making yourself or your, your family ill. You mentioned that you, you cooked this first one that keeled over on you, and uh, it tasted good, it smelled good, and you didn't have any ill effects. So I think you got your answer. But certainly you want to be careful. Um, I, I just I wanted to point out a few things on the management end uh, to kind of help you along so that maybe you don't run into this the next time. You might also want to think about you know maybe, maybe processing them about a week um, uh, sooner because you had mentioned you were going to go to eight weeks and you started seeing these issues right at the seven week mark. That's pretty typical. If you've got a quick growing Cornish cross bird, that's why I, I, I really like the birds I use. Um, and for anybody who's wondering before you ask, it is Schlecht hatchery. They are in Eastern Iowa. My good friend, Chris Jordan, Illinois turned me on to them years ago. They, it is a Cornish cross bird, but they do grow just a wee bit slower. And um, they just haven't been, I guess, messed with, doctored with, re-engineered for, for quite some time. Um, and they're static so that you're, you're not always trying to hit this moving target. These Cornish cross birds you get from most places, uh, you know, the, the, the big chicken industry says, hey, we need the birds to do this, and they bioengineer it to do that. And then you're trying to play catch up as a, as a manager in the field, and it's, it's really a pain in the neck. Or other appendages. Anyway, um, you know, there's just a few tips there for you. If you're going to keep using the same hatchery, maybe think about 
butchering at seven weeks or maybe thinking about backing that protein off a little bit after you hit like week six, you know, those last two weeks, slow them down a little bit. Um, usually you don't want to go past eight, eight and a half weeks with most of these birds. They're just, they're done. They're done. They're finished. And, um, that's about all the more time you can afford them on pasture before you really start having a lot of problems. So anyway, Corey, I hope that helps. Thanks for sending in, uh, again, one of the more unique questions I've ever had on TSP. So, uh, again, I'm sure Jack will have something to add, but, uh, hopefully you find that helpful. For everyone else who want to learn more about me, head out to my website, DarbySimpson.com. There's a lot of free blog articles out there on all kinds of things, including raising poultry. There's, I think, a pretty good article out there on brooder management, which is really key when you're raising poultry. If you mess these guys up in the brooder, you're going to have a lot of big problems on pasture. So if you're going to raise 25 or 50 birds like Corey here to put in your freezer, do yourself a favor. Go read that. It's free. It's just there for you to learn so that you can be more successful in your quest for independence. Uh, if you want to go deeper, I do offer one-on-one consulting. And I'm also a part of a, a weekly podcast with my good friend Diego Footer over at permaculturevoices.com. That is called Grass-Fed Life. You can also find it in iTunes. We get into all kinds of stuff. More from a you know professional for-profit farming aspect, but there's all kinds of episodes out there. I mean, tens and tens and tens of hours on how to raise these animals successfully, whether or not you want to make a buck with them. So go out and, uh, you know, check that podcast out. Um, we got like 55 episodes out there now, 56 episodes. So a lot of, a lot of good information. At least we think it's good. Hopefully you enjoy it. As always, thanks for the question, Corey. Uh, keep the questions coming on in, guys. I enjoy answering them. Enjoy helping you guys out. So shoot them over to Uncle Jack, and he will get them to me, and I'll be happy to answer them for you. As always, everyone have a wonderful weekend, and take care. I'm not going to say anybody's wrong here, but this is how I've always handled birds when I'm raising them. Once they're big enough to be eaten, whether they're you know being raised for a layer flock or being raised for meat, If they start to have health problems, I'll isolate them and try to get them to come back around. If they don't look like they're going to make it, I'll kill them before they'll die. Um, sometimes it comes on quick, and it makes me think of a story one time. I was at an event that uh, this, this lady was running, and I don't know how it came up. It wasn't something I said, but somebody told her that I hunted, and she told me how offensive that was that I killed poor innocent animals. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, I understand you're a hunter. I was kind of taken off guard at first, and I'm like, well, what what business is that? She just, I, I was somebody told me about this, and I just can't believe the people. And I don't remember what. It was some kind of fundraiser or something we were doing uh, that I hadn't gotten involved with to try to help out. And uh, you know, somebody that would, would be willing to do something like this would also be out there killing these poor animals and stuff. And she finally went on about her way, and later on she she, she said, well, are, are you going to have some of the hors d'oeuvres uh, before dinner? And I was, but I you know, facetiously said, well, no, I can't eat that. And they were like meatballs and things like that. And she said, well, why? I said, well, I assume that since you know you're okay with the food that's here, All of the animals that are here died of natural causes because otherwise somebody would have went and killed a poor helpless animal with some sort of, you know, implement or machine or a club or cut their throat or something like that. And, and since you're opposed to people killing animals, uh, then, then, then I, I have to assume that all of the food here came from animals that like died of natural causes. And, and I don't eat food from animals that just died. I just don't do it because I don't know what they died from. 
And uh, she got real sheepish and went away, and I went ahead and ate some meatballs. Um, and the reason I tell that story is, one, because it's funny and it makes a point, but the other is because it is my actual philosophy. If an animal just falls over and dies, I don't know what killed it. Um, you might, I mean, it would depend, I guess, do I, if it was a survival situation, you know, I'd be a lot more likely. But I've had an uh, issue here that we had for a while until we changed some things about the way we were handling water draining where some of our, our ducks got sick and died, and I'm pretty sure it was avian tuberculosis. And when we opened them up to, to autopsy them, their, like their gizzard and all just was basically exploded. And I certainly wouldn't eat that. Um, so if you were going to do it, I agree with Darby that you would want to perform an autopsy and make sure everything looks good. But to me, if I have one animal die, you know, I, I'm more likely to, to feed it to the as carrying to the wildlife uh, than, than to uh, to consume it. I actually think I'm being wasteful, uh, but I'm erring to the side of caution uh, because the last thing I want to do is get sick from something that I don't understand what I'm getting sick from. Um, so that's that's my thing. And, and when, whenever I open an animal, even when I've killed, if, if the organs don't look right, if the meat doesn't, if something looks drastically wrong, like Darby's talking about a lot of fluid in it or something like that, I discard it. I won't even feed it to my dogs. I, I really won't because um, I don't know what the hell caused the problem. Um, but in your situation, he's probably right. It's probably not enough water, wrong feed, or getting too hot. And in those situations, there's probably no reason not to eat it. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another one. I have a question now for Stephen Harris on living in a van and rigging up your air conditioner with a generator. Stephen, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question. I have a question from John saying, what is an efficient way to air condition the cargo area of a Ford Transit van when parked? Background. I'm planning to buy a Ford Transit van and do a conversion kind of like the one here. And he gives me a link to converting a van into a home. However, to start, I just have a bed, a battery, and a propane tank for a small portable stove and maybe for heating water for a shower. I don't like heat, though, so in the summer I will want some type of air conditioning. I can live with a fan, but I won't like it. I don't blame you. I want you to have air conditioning, too. The best idea I have is a Honda EU2000i hooked up to something like this. He gives me a link to one of the R2-D2-shaped air conditioners on Amazon that is inside the uh, van, and it goes out through a round duct, which is fine. I use them all the time. However, I don't really like this idea. The noise would bother me and maybe draw attention if I'm parked someplace that doesn't allow camping. Well, let me tell you something, John. The white noise from the air conditioner is blissful. It will drown out all the other noises you would normally hear being in a van on a street someplace. I can understand your concern about the generator, and we'll address that in a little bit. Could I put the generator under the van, or on top of the van in a sound box, or in a sealed cabinet in the van with an exhaust vent? John, you cannot put the generator inside the vehicle no matter what, okay? I don't care what you're exhausting, what you're venting, what you're bringing in for air, it does not belong in the van. In fact, I had one guy write to me and say, 
I'm looking at putting a generator inside my van, but due to security concerns, I can't even roll down the window, so I'll have to run with it on inside the van. Oh, God. Talk about taking yourself out of the gene pool by suicide. That would be one very quick way of doing it. I wrote back to the guy and said, you're about ready to kill yourself. And hopefully he get, took, got the message. Uh, let's see. Would it be just better to idle the van for hours and use the factory AC or the portable unit? Some vans have a vent for a factory AC in the back. Some don't. I really don't like any of these options. Help! Okay, John, I will help you. Maybe a bucket of ice with a fan blowing through it. No. That is completely not you. Okay. You're not stupid. The idea in those stupid videos on Facebook showing air being blown through a bucket full of ice is absolutely retarded stupid. If you have your air conditioner you sent me, it's a 12,000 BTU air conditioner, John. Let's put this in ice in perspective. One ton of air conditioning is 12,000 BTUs per hour for 24 hours. That is the equivalent to melting one ton, 2,000 pounds of ice. So if you have a 12,000 BTU AC unit keeping your van cool, and got news for you, the AC unit built into the van under the hood is probably two and a half to three tons of air conditioning. So if you got two and a half and three tons of air conditioning under the hood, you got one ton of air conditioning that is uh, inside the van and ducting outside. What do you think a bucket with 20 pounds of ice is going to do? That's right. It's going to do nothing. Nothing worth a damn. Uh, having the AC inside the van is a good idea. In fact, I have done it. I have a cargo-covered trailer that I use to go to the Renewable Energy Resource Fair, and I made it into a sleeping and living quarters in addition to hauling my books to the fair. It was a camper for me, and I have the R2-D2 air conditioner in it just like you want to, and it works exceptional. One thing that you can consider that will help you save space is for you to go to um, Amazon and type in RV air conditioner. You'll find the ones that go on top of the van, and they... That you have to drill a 14-inch hole in the top of the van, and the AC goes mounts to it, and it then blows AC down. They're like five to six hundred bucks starting price. Now all AC units are heat pumps, and if you run it in backwards, you get a true heat pump heater, and you have a heat pump cooler as well. And so you can use it in the wintertime with electricity to heat the van a great deal more efficiently, about three times more efficiently than if you use a standard electric-resistant ceramic heater to heat off of your generator. The ceramic heater is about 5,000 BTUs of heat per hour. If you're running it through the AC system in its heating mode, which is backwards from an AC mode, you're probably getting around 15,000 BTUs of heating, depending upon the outside temperature. 
and that would be a great benefit for, for benefit for you. Plus, it would get that air conditioner out of the vehicle and up onto the roof with it. Um, I have again. I've done all of this stuff. In fact, a little secret for you guys: the idea of living in a van or a camper and being mobile, or taking a cargo uh, trailer and converting it into a living situation, like a stealth uh, camping vehicle, is one of my favorite subjects in the world. I love it. I love it. Love the simplicity of what you must do. And I learn things from the this part of the world, you know, living in a cargo container, and it teaches me valuable preparedness stuff, because if they can do it in a car. There's this video of a lady living in a Prius, and she has done it for like three years. And she covers everything, including taking a dump in the back seat of the Prius and how she handles duty and everything else. And she shows you everything she's got, and she is interviewed by this wonderful, amazing man by the name of Bob Wells, B-O-B-W-E-L-L-S. Go look him up on YouTube, and her video on the Prius is one of the essentials, you know, the Stuff You Must Have series that he's done about stuff you have to have in a car or a van if you're going to go out and live on, on it. He also is the owner of Cheap. C-H-E-A-P, R-V, living, L-I-V-I-N-G dot com. I encourage you to check out his website, buy his book off of Amazon, and watch all of his YouTube videos. They are utterly fascinating about how this subculture lives anywhere in the United States without rent for pennies compared to what we're used to paying for home prices and mortgages and everything else. I think even if you're a preparedness person and you're not going to do this, uh, you have a lot to learn from this, especially how they handle sanitation and, you know, clothes and washing and everything else. You will really learn a lot. Some Someday, uh, I better go sign up for it. Jack is probably yelling at me. Uh, Jack and I are going to do a show on a bug out trailer and it's going to be unrehearsed. I'm not going to take any notes or write anything down. It's just going to be Jack and I brainstorming on bug out trailers. So if you wanted to have a bug out trailer, uh, which I think is a good idea because I really think bugging out means taking more than a backpack, then, uh, watching these videos from Bob Wells on YouTube and all the other ones that pop up when you search for Bob Wells, you get all the other people's videos, I think is a fantastic idea. So, um, John goes on to say, I will insulate the van, but can't insulate the floor and roof too much and I have to have room to stand. John, go watch the Bob Wells stuff on YouTube. You'll see the insulation that he uses. And it's reflective, it's an inflated poly, it works really good. On a related note, anything I should do for the propane or gas can or the generator stored in the cargo living area? Yes, you want a Honda EU 2000 and I. You want the six-gallon fuel tank from vmsales.com, Victor Michael Sales, S-A-L-E-S dot com. It will run for three days on this one tank. Otherwise, you're going to run out of gas every six hours or so, and that's going to wake you up. So you want the fuel tank, anything, propane, gasoline, or generator you want to have mounted to the wall and or to the floor. 
Lots of bungee cords it will do the job just fine. So if you get into an accident, these things don't become missiles and go flying and take your head off and fly out the front window with it. So you really want to have this stuff um, tied down. Yes, you can take the generator and you can build what's called a doghouse for it. It can go on top of your vehicle. It can go underneath your vehicle. It can go near your vehicle. Make sure you lock it with a cable or chain to your vehicle. Um, a doghouse will go a long way towards soundproofing the EU-2000i. The EU-2000i is already a very quiet AC unit, but building the doghouse for it will do it even more. If you guys have any more questions on this subject, or any other subject. I am open to them all, and I want to see them. Please go to stephen1234.com and email me your question if you want it done personally, or send it to Jack if you want me to do it on the forum. Either way, I am happy to take care of you. If it's an urgent question, just email me, and I'll answer you. And sometimes I'll take that question and use it on a... Uh, uh, expert panel answer, even though it'll be weeks in the future. So uh, thanks a lot, guys. Good question. Good subject. Go look up the stuff I told you about. Talk to you later. So good stuff from Stephen Harrison. I, I didn't know about that, but I knew about the Bob Wells we buy trees from, but I didn't know about that Bob Wells. I, I put a link to the specific video that he uh, mentioned in the show notes today. So you can come check it out. And, um, you can take a look at it. I've already subscribed this to the channel. I ain't had a chance to go through it yet. I'm actually putting this show together in real time. I'm listening to this and, and doing my follow-up today as it's being put together. So I haven't pre-screened the uh, expert counsel responses, um, the people we have. It's just not necessary. Uh, it's true of our, uh, our we, we call him a uh, pinch hitter today, uh, Patrick Rorman. I got a question on this uh, really fancy-looking Russian knife sharpener sells for over $300. Wrangler Star did a review of it, and he was—he really liked it. He said it was a box from Russia that changed his life is the name of the video. And Patrick will mention that video, and I, I put a, a link up to it on, on the show notes today. And uh, But I, I really didn't know anything about it, and I'm happy with, with my knife sharpener of choice that Patrick will mention here, and I'll give you a little more info on at the end. Um, so, but I, I just said I don't really know, and I don't have like enough insight into you know these different sharpening technologies. I know how to use a stone, and I know how to use a steel, and I know how to use my little uh, automatic sharpener. And, and Patrick, will you take this one for me? So he was good enough to do it. And again, I'd like more questions for Patrick so we can officially add him to the council. Uh, with that, Patrick, talk to us about this amazing Russian uh, knife sharpener. Hey guys, this is Patrick with MT Knives with today's TSP Expert Council Question of the Week. The caller called in and didn't leave his name, but had questions about this uh, Russian sharpening system. Uh, I'm familiar with it. I've seen the reviews that Wrangler Star did on it. And here's uh, my thoughts on it without actually using the system myself. I feel like the system is too complicated. There's too many nuts and bolts and pieces for it, uh, which is going to make it less user-friendly. It's also going to be slower, quite a bit slower. I don't believe it's really user-friendly. It's going to take a lot of time changing grits and stuff like that. I believe in the KISS principle, keeping it simple. The sharpening system that I sell 
is uh, real simple to use. It's fast to change out knives and change out grits. And if there was a better system out there, I'd be using it. I use my uh, sharpening system almost every day. I'm still also a firm believer in learning how to sharpen by hand uh, before using a mechanical system. A mechanical system is going to remove steel much quicker, and therefore the mistakes you make will be amplified. With that said, um, Beyond Razor Sharp will teach you everything you need to know on how to sharpen by hand and is backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. If you don't improve in your sharpening abilities after watching the video, I'll give you a full money-back guarantee if you contact me in the first 30 days. I haven't personally used a WorkSharp. However, I know a lot of people really enjoy theirs. I've uh, had some knives that I've repaired that have been sharpened on a WorkSharp, and that goes back to uh, knowing how to sharpen a knife by hand before using a mechanical uh, system. But I know Jack also has a link for the WorkSharp on Amazon, and that would be my next recommendation over the Russian unit. Thank you very much. And if you guys have any more questions for me, be sure to send them to Jack. This has been Patrick Rorman with MT Knives. Stay sharp. Um, the, the workshop he's talking about that I specifically recommend is the Ken Onion edition. And I guess Ken Onion is some custom knife maker or something like that. It basically has a lot more control over the angles without using any kind of attachments or whatever. It's all integrated. It works really great. You can screw up a knife really fast with the work sharp. But I would say this, the, the knife sharpener that Patrick uses, um, for day to day sharpening, not, not the stones, but the, uh, which is, you know, if you're a hobby knife sharpener, you can sharpen one knife a month or something using wet stones, go for it, you know, or, or oil stones. Patrick prefers a wet stone. Uh, I actually do as well. Um, But if you're going to, you know, once a week take all your kitchen knives and sharpen them or, or once a month do that or something like that, it gets old doing it with a stone. And and if you're making thousands of knives like Patrick does, you're not going to sharpen all of them with a stone. You're just not going to do it. So he uses a belt sharpener and uh, it's a much larger tool than the, the work sharp. And I, I would just say you can screw a knife up just as fast with that if you don't know what you're doing as you can with the work sharp. The difference is because of the way it's designed, kind of in a pull through and trying to make it where anybody can use it, they did a pretty good job with it. You can kind of screw things up right at the heel of that knife, and it, it, it's a little difficult to get good at the tip of the knife. And what I would suggest is your work sharp sharpener. That's for all your knives. You, you know, your, your fifty dollar and under knives. That you know, it's the the pocket knife that you carry when you're not carrying your two hundred dollar knife. It's the three dollar Wahoo killer knife that you buy a, a case of and throw in the drawer. Uh, in fact, I would say the best way to learn to use the WorkSharp is go over to uh, Bud K and look up Wahoo Killer. And I think those knives sell for $1.99 if I remember right. They're a blue handled kind of a Mora knockoff. They're like, a, like two bucks or less a piece. Buy a bunch of them. I have tons of them. They're cheap and they're a decent knife for $2. When one gets dull, or get a bunch of them dull, or take them out, and if they're $2 knives, take three or four of them outside and, and drag the freaking blade across the sidewalk and dull them. And then start working on using the work sharp. Take a look at the video that comes with it, a little disc that shows you how to use it, so you're using it properly, and work on those knives. And when you're happy with what you're doing with a knife you don't give a damn about, then you know put a knife on it that you care about a little bit. And then when you're happy with what you're doing with that, you can put your more ex you know, expensive knives on it, 
But I would recommend a stone or a professional, have somebody like Patrick or somebody else you know that's a professional sharpener, sharpen your higher end you know, when you start talking about the multi-hundred dollar knives. That, that, that's kind of how I look at the whole thing. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead. I've got uh, one more for a uh, – actually, that's it. That, that is all of the questions for the council members today. Uh, I have a question for myself now to uh, handle. And um, I want to talk more about the, the dark side of this than the light side of it, I guess. Uh, I am no expert, but I do have some experience here. This comes from Zach. Zach says, what are your thoughts about positive cash flow rental real estate? Says, I'm considering purchasing a house or two to rent out as passive income source that will help me diversify and build resilience in my life. They will make a small income after mortgage and all associated bills. What are your thoughts on doing this? Thanks, Zach. Okay, this is what I want you to understand. That is a lot easier said than done. It really is. If you know that you can buy a house and you know you can get good occupancy with it, and you know that that will put a profit, it will cover the cost of the mortgage plus enough to create a positive cash flow, and you know you can do that, about 400 other people right now in your market know that too about that house. That, that's, that's the reality. <clears throat> the, the, there's something going on right now in real estate across the country, and it's something I said would happen you know, six years ago when the market was on its ass, and it's a real estate boom. And uh, it's for exactly the reason that I said when, when the crash of 08, 09 happened, building halted. Now, back in, in you know, 2006, 2007, et cetera, and all the way from about 1996 up to about 2008, right here in this area in Texas, there were people that were making a living for a while. And all they did was on Friday night, they had these big trailers and they went out and they put all these signs in the ground that talked about, you know, you could see new model homes, new home development, because there was a law that you could only put those signs up over the weekend. So there were people that, I had a, a buddy of mine, he went into a trailer building business because he built three trailers for himself. He sold them to other people that were doing that job as well. And then he went into like just building trailers. And it's a good thing he did it because... What happened was all the municipalities got tired of all these signs. I mean, it looked worse than political signs. And so they put in these, like, little kiosk things with, like, things like, here's what you get. And it took that business away. That's another lesson there. When something's booming, don't expect it to always stay that way. Same with real estate, okay? So here's what concerns me right now. Money has never been cheaper than it is right now especially corporate money, like if you're Centax Homes or somebody like that, Solitaire Homes or whatever. Uh, if you are a developer, if you're a builder, you can get money right now for cheap, super cheap. Um, and you can, there's plenty of land available. Now, in some markets, there isn't. I'm talking about markets like yeah, there's land everywhere around here still. And there's almost no building going on. So this has me concerned that the current real estate boom the people that do it for a living have no confidence in its sustainability, or right now they would be taking that cheap money and doing developments and rolling people into those houses because there's more buyers than sellers right now. What does this have to do with rental income? It means that finding houses that you can immediately flip and turn around at a positive cash flow for rental is hard now, and it was easy comparatively six, seven, eight years ago. That's what it means. Um, the, the, the converse of that is it's easier for you to get money now to do it 
but it's also easier for everybody else who wants to buy to get money now to do it. And right now, everybody and their brother that's, that's been – what's happened is the other thing is the rental market's been driven up in cost so much that 20 and, – and we have a whole – like a – remember the baby boomers retiring? Well, now we have the opposite. We have the, the, the millennial bubble buying. And my son and his, his wife are in this right now trying to buy a house. And they're excited and they're being emotional and they're making mistakes and they're getting frustrated because houses are going for above asking price and things like that. And everybody that's renting wants to get out of the world of renting and into the world of buying now. So this isn't the best time to buy a house. This could be sustained for a while, but it won't be sustained forever. But the, the, the problem is if you, if you wait it out, you may wait too long, and whatever it pops at, it may not drop below where it is right now. We, you don't really know. I, I wish I could be that forward-looking, uh, that much of Spirico Domus, right? But I can't. I don't know. Uh, because at least in this market, the houses are still, they're, they're going above asking price, but they're still, most of them, selling for, you know, a reasonable price. When you see a nice three-bed or four-bed, two-bath in a nice neighborhood going for $150,000, you know, well, you know, nicely remodeled, that's not insane, but it's way high for around here. You know, that same house five years ago was $100,000, just to give you an idea, that, you know, maybe one hundred and ten. And, and so there's this upward pressure on the market right now. So that's something to consider. So all I'm saying is you can make a lot of money in real estate, but you can lose a lot of money in real estate. And you can't ever get hooked on to what's called the bigger sucker theory. The bigger sucker theory is that no matter what I pay for this house, I'll always be able to sell it for at least what I paid for it. Because ask a lot of people over the year, last you know 10 years how that worked out for them. It, it, it didn't. Whenever I hear somebody say that, I just shake my head and think, man, you're about to do something wrong. Even if I look at the deal and it, on his face, it looks okay. I'm just thinking, if you're saying that in your heart, you, you know the deal better than me. Something, something's wrong. So be careful. I think if you can do it right, it is the number one way to become wealthy in America. It is the number one way to become a millionaire in America. So I'm talking about the dark side here, but I'm also not putting down the concept. It just has to be executed properly, and this is what it requires, and it's what I've talked about every time I've talked about real estate on this show, and it's what I've been trying to tell my son and my daughter-in-law for the last three weeks, patience and no emotion. You have to be an effing Vulcan when it comes to real estate. You don't get emotionally attached to anything. It's an effing house. So what? Somebody else bought it. Good. Because this is what I'm willing to pay for it based on what I want to do with it and the budget that I have available. And if it goes above that number, then I can't do it. Now, if that continuously happens to me, I might have to reevaluate, well, can I rent at a higher rate uh, than I think I can, etc. And but you got to be really careful. And you, the, one of the most important things you can do when it comes to buying real estate, you got to look at 100 houses. And track them. When do they sell? What did they sell for? How long were they on the market? That will give you so much of a pulse for the market because it's very easy when you so you're cherry picking the things that you most want. So you got to go reverse of you know we've got our book out right now how to sell your house in any market, and I, I think we took you know like maybe the worst time in the world to release it because like everything's selling right now. But man, you can still learn so much from that book. So uh, it's called the One Percent Effect. You can find it on Amazon. Check it out. Uh, it's by Dustin DeFriest and Jack Spirko, yours truly. Um, and it's the reverse of that. The, 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 
the, the houses that you're looking at, the houses that my kids are looking at right now, they're in their price range, and they're cherry-picking the very best of the very best in that price range, which is how you sell your house. You make your house that 1% better than everything else in the market. Well, every this is exact, it's just validating what I said. Everybody goes to that. You need to look for the house that you know, they're asking $150 for. That you look at it and go, that's probably worth $130. Well, if you're right, eventually it's going to end up selling for $130 because the guy's got to get rid of it. So you go look at it, and you track it, and you see where it really sells. And you're patient. This is a marathon, not a sprint. And it doesn't matter why you're buying the house for personal use or you're buying a house for rental use. Now, let's move on. You have found the house. You have budgeted in the repairs you're going to have to make so that that house is going to rent at the top of the rental market now. You have evaluated the neighborhood. Based on your best instincts and the hard numbers that you have, that house is going to rent for $1,400 a month, and it should have occupancy right away and heavily at that price point because it's actually in the neighborhood of a house that should rent for $1,500. So you're going reverse this way. You're hooking people in like that. If you get a good tenant, you just raise the rent a little bit and raise the rent a little bit and just stay 10, 15 bucks behind what he'd get if he moved for equivalency and they'll probably stick around. That's how you, that's how you handle that. And you want a good tenant that doesn't screw up your house. And I can't emphasize how important that is. So you, you, you're in that mode. This is what you have to do. You have to assume that your tenant is going to screw up $2,000 worth of shit minimum a year. And that when he vacates that house, you're going to be putting $5,000 into it. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but this is why you want long-term tenants. Because you'll probably put almost as much into a house after the guy's used it for two 12-month terms as you will for five. Because the guy that's going to leave after two is probably, unless life circumstances cause him to move, He's probably going to screw it up as bad in two years as, as, as a person, normal person would in five that would stay there five years. And, you know, you don't get a lot of five-year renters. Most renters, especially now, everybody wants to move to the house. So it's a, it's an interesting time to be in this, this world. And you never want to buy things at the top of the market. So I think you really have to be looking to be safe for yourself to, to houses that need work before they can be rented. In fact, houses that would need work before most people would want to live in them. And then you have to be able to get the work done quickly, efficiently, and cheaply. And you don't go high-end with a rental. Now, I'm not saying you don't go better than what's in the neighborhood, but you never go super high-end with a rental because renters F shit up. Some of my experience of being a landlord, one of the places I rented was my place in Arkansas before we moved there. I rented it to my niece and her now ex-husband. I will never rent to a family member again. It put an undue strain on a relation, my relationship with my niece, and I love my niece. They were pigs. They were pigs around that house. When we went up there and visited them, it was like uh, like dad was coming or something. They had to hide all their piggery. And when we got them out of there, the first thing we did was tear the carpets out of the place. I did I did tile flooring in the kitchen, and, and uh, actually Dorothy did the tile flooring in the kitchen. I did the wood flooring uh, in the living room. And then we brought in brand new carpet for the, 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 I did actually, I did wood flooring in the dining room. She did tile in the kitchen and we brought, brought in brand new carpet for the bedrooms. And, uh, it was just absolutely necessary to do. And, uh, 
renters just generally don't take care of a property and things go wrong that they should tell you about because you're willing to fix it and they don't. If it really affects their life, they'll tell you. But, you know, if it, the sink's dripping a little bit underneath and it's not the bathroom they generally use, they won't tell you. And when they finally move out, you'll find a hole in the floor, the subfloor of the bathroom. That's what that's what renting's like. Um, you need to have, I would say it's a good idea to try to find a mentor in your market that does rental properties that's willing to work with you. And a lot of good ones are willing to take an apprentice here and there, kind of, so to say. Um You might pay them by finding the first property for them and then you know, kind of tagging along while they get it ready and, and see how everything they do, and then you go find one of your own. That's how some of these guys operate. Um, and, and look at their contracts and what's legal, because I don't know all of that. Um, you get into gray areas because you can't deny certain people for certain reasons. So what you always want to do is make sure that when you're putting a property up for rent, you're doing it in a way that's going to get multiple people applying Because then you can turn somebody down, and when they say, why was I rejected? Because I took this person. You have a justification. Well, this person had higher income. Uh, this person applied first. This person um, had better references. right? But when you have only one applicant and you tell them no, you can get in areas of you know discrimination. Well, you said no because I was black. Well, no, I said no because your references said you were an asshole. You know, I mean, but that, you know, that, that can put you into just arguments with the state you don't want to have. So I think you got to be kind of careful. And every market's different. Understand, I wouldn't do this in my market right now. But I know there's markets in this country where I would. My, where I grew up in Pottsville, Pennsylvania, probably ripe for it right now. There's always people that need to rent places there. They can't afford to buy. They can't, they can't get a loan. There's tons of cheap-ass houses. You know, I mean, so... There's there's always a place to do this, but you got to find the right place in the right circumstances with the right numbers, and you got to you got to be an asshole of a landlord on some level, like you know, semi-annual inspections of the property for quality assurance or something like that written into the lease, just so you know what the hell's going on. And it's not for poking around people's stuff or nothing. Like you know, is the foundation falling apart? Is the carpet ruined? What have you? You got to have good deposits on it first and last month's rent. Pets, all, I'll be all this stuff. It, it's if it was easy, everybody would do it. And, and the only thing I want to caution people who want to go into it with is it's never as easy as a late TV commercial says. It's never as easy as the infomercial on the radio says. If you go to one of the workshops or things like that, it's never as easy as anybody they, any of those people say. And uh, from my understanding, most of them aren't going to teach you anything you can't learn on your own, and they're not going to teach you any faster. Um, And it's very competitive, at least in my market right now. Um, my kid and his wife went and looked at two houses yesterday. One was a rental, and it was a pit. It, like, smelled bad. Harbor was shot, holes in the wall, things like that. And it's probably why like, the landlord's selling. He just wants the tenant out. He wants that out from underneath the house. And he knows he can get a premium on the house right now, even though it's shit. Uh, the other one was very nicely done. They had 14 offers. Been on the market for a week. Be careful. I'm just saying, it's not even about the real, like the rental question right now. Be careful buying right now, folks. Be careful. There's, there's still deals. There's still the right property. There's still, but be careful because th this type of thing, it had to happen. And there's two things that are going to happen. It's not going to sustain itself. And when that happens, it's going to drop drastically.
How far? We don't know. Um, or it's going to level off. Or if it looks sustainable, the builders will come back. And when the builders come back and they're competing with the, the used market with brand new homes and they're doing production homes and they're churning out three and four bedrooms like boom, 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 sticks and bricks, that's going to put a damper on that market. It really is. Quick, hard, and fast because you know they're going to have three models for people to come look just like it was in the old days. If this sustains, we'll go back to that. And that'll put a big damper on the market. So just be careful. I'm not saying not do it. Just be very, very careful. Always good advice for real estate. And remember, you're an effing Vulcan. No emotion. No emotion with real estate. And you're a heartless bastard. You don't care what the seller needs or wants or about their, their sick dog or their sick grandma. That shit doesn't matter. It's all about numbers. This is way too big a thing to make a mistake on. On that note, we have had a lot of people pick up the book, The 1% Effect. I'll put a link in the show notes again today for that. Um, on how to sell your house in any market. Because even when the market's this good, you want, you want to be the house that has 14 offers, not the house that has one and it just gets sold. right? And, and that book tells you how to do it. But my bigger thing is we've had a lot of people pick it up. We've had like four reviews. If you've got that book from us, give it a look through you know, and give us a review, please. If we can get 20 good reviews, uh, that changes everything on, on Amazon for us. I, I'd really appreciate those of you who have picked it up. It is in Kindle copy only. I've had a couple of people ask about print. Man, this is all on Dustin, and he wanted to get it out, and this is the way to get it out now. And if you're on Kindle Unlimited, guys, you can get it for free. Uh, Prime members, you can get one Kindle ebook a month for free. So maybe consider getting that one for this month and giving us a review. I'd really appreciate it. Again, it's called The 1% Effect, How to Sell Your, Your House in Any Market at Asking by Dustin DeFries and Jack Spearco. Anyway, with that... On the Amazon thing, if you like supporting this show because you want us to be around and you like what you learn here, please consider doing your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. When you go there, you'll see a link. You go on over to Amazon from that link. You'll see the Amazon deals of the day. Check that stuff out. If you don't want any of it, just search for whatever you're going to buy anyway. Pick your stuff, buy your stuff, get your stuff like you were going to do anyway, and you're supporting the show because you've gone through our affiliate link. It's, it's just that simple. Um, next up, though, I always do a review, and I have one for you today that's kind of a kind of recycled, but not really. It's the same but different man in the words of Tommy Chung. Um, I did a review recently on the Litum 20 LED solar wireless security lights. And I said they were fantastic, and they are. I've got four of them set up around my property. I've got one out by my, my gate. I've got one right where we pull the car in. I've got one as we walk past our swimming pool uh, where the, uh, the, the deck is. It's up on the, the, the uh, rail of the deck. It's a real high deck because it's an above-ground pool. And i got one on the other rail so that when we walk out there to go to the duck area at night, it lights that whole backside up. And at that point, I had them. I'd test them. I'd use them for like four weeks. I was very happy with them. And I said that they also had these smaller, more compact, eight LED ones that were more affordable. And I had just gotten them, and I wasn't sure whether I'd, you know, because just because these, you know, these manufacturers out of China, they some of them have some really great stuff. E-Tech City is another one, but not all, you know, um, Kingbo with their their plant lights, they're great for the money. But that, sometimes the manufacturer will have one model that's really good and one model that's crap. So I wanted to hold off on whether or not I'd recommend the eight LED ones. They've been just as good. I've been running uh, those four since I got the 20 LED models. I put them 
all on the uh, western fence of my duck holding area, so that if Mr. Fox comes sneaking through the uh, field or whatever at night, he trips that light on it, hits him, it's like, what the hell's going on? And it deters him, and if he continues to come, he gets, you know, like 9,000 volts up his ass from the 25-mile electric fence on about a quarter mile of wire, so that sends him the other direction too. But it's just a much better thing. Well, what happened was recently I had my, my farmhand, uh, I told him, I said, I want you to clear out all this stuff that's like all the, the mulch that's basically coming out of the duck pen and building up on the ground underneath the electric wire because if it touches, it shorts out and the fence doesn't work. So I sent him out there with a hoe to do that, and that night Dorothy put the ducks to bed. She came and said, the fence is not working. I'm like, well, of course it's not. I sent Cody out there. And I, I went out, and I was walking on the outside of the fence, and um, you know those lights just are coming on as I'm walking by. And what had happened is where we had two pieces of hog panel that make the fence up wired together, he, he broke the wire, and the one popped out and was like shorting directly against the bottom wire. Now, instead of telling me, he just, like, Pretended it didn't happen and went away. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I went, tie wrapped it for temporary repair so I could hog ring it the next day and uh, tie wrapped it in and that got it off the wire and the fence came right back up. Well, those lights were a huge help because it was like I could see everything that I was doing. And I didn't have to sit there with my, you know, my little pen light and my teeth or whatever, my tack light and my teeth. So they were useful for that. Well, I just got four more of them and I'm going to put them like. I'm going to completely cover that fence and that side of that outbuilding so that anything coming in there gets hit with light and any kind of work we have to do at night is there. Which one's better, the little one or the big one? Well, the little ones are $39.99 for four, and the big ones are like $34.99 for two. And the big ones are brighter. So how much light do you need? And in areas like an entranceway or something, I'd go with the bigger one. And by the way, I have a link in the review. They have one. Um, that is 54 LEDs, and I bet it's bright as hell. It looks almost too big to me, like the form factor size. It just looks kind of gaudy. Like if, if you could put it up on an eave somewhere, somewhere you wouldn't really notice it during the day, but if it's somewhere out in the open, it just seems like it's going to be like, what is that big-ass thing? Uh, but they have that. Um, but I think the 20 LEDs are just pretty badass. They really are. Again, the 8 LEDs, though, for... Kind of a small, I'd say they're about the same level of bright, apparent brightness. It's how far the light carries. So when you're walking 20 feet away from the 20 LED model and it comes on, you can see right where you're at. When that 8 LED model comes on, you can kind of see closer, like you get a little closer, you can really see. It just kind of lights the area up a little less. Yeah. So how much light do you feel that you need? But they're a great product. I've trialed both sizes now. Really like them. Again, the company is called Litum, L-I-T-O-M. And there's a ton of people selling these things. I've tried a couple, and some of them, they're okay, and I've given them away. And some of them were so shitty, I sent them back. These things are awesome, and the big thing is lithium-ion batteries. The um, the eight LED models come with a 14500 lithium-ion at 800, uh, 800 milliamps. That's plenty to run those eight LEDs. Uh, so check them out, Litum. Uh, solar wireless lights and get them through tspaz.com. Next up, it's time for the song of the day today. Uh, this song is called One More Time by Queensryche. And John Adam has been, you know, helping me out with these songs for the year. Uh, of course, we're at the year 1994 right now. Queensryche was a band that I knew well from the 90s, um, from their uh, album called Empire, which was, was huge for them. 
And the song that I actually liked best off that album, I kind of liked it because I could play it for people that didn't know who Queensryche was and go, but you can't tell me who this is. And they listened to this song called Silent Lucidity. And uh, they listened for like a couple seconds. They go, oh, that's Pink Floyd. Like, no, it's not. That's Floyd. No, no, it's not Pink Floyd. And they would they'd get angry. They would actually get angry. There. And almost no other song by Queensryche sounds anything like Pink Floyd. Just that one song. It's, it's, a, it's a really cool song. Um, but... Uh, So they came out with, uh, I can't remember what the name of the album One More Time was on, and uh, it might have been, the album itself might have been called One More Time. Um, I, no, it was Promised Land, that's what it was called. And this was like their biggest song off of it. And I, this came out again in the mid-90s. Now, I had been away, and I'd kind of gotten out of the kind of the popular rock and alternative rock world while I was in Panama. I spent most of my time hanging out with country boys and The NCO club that I went to was all country music and all. And then I moved to Texas. So I, I would hear music like this, but I really wouldn't pay attention to who it was. So I was like, I'd never heard this song. And when I, when I, when I listened to it, I heard this, this guitar riff and this da-na-na, da i am like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard that song. And I never listened to the words to it. Well, what John Adams says is that the song to him represents is a change in philosophy. I'm like, I wonder what he means. So I looked up the lyrics, and I love this song now. Um, I really do. And I'm going to read a couple of the stanzas to you. Um, Behind my eyes, I keep my truth from you. No one enters this secret place. The barrier only I embrace. Time is fleeing now, they say. Take time to look inside and face the change. Okay. But it gets better. This, this, this could literally be an anthem, this, this, this verse, for everything I teach here at TSP. Work hard in life, boy. There's paradise in the end. Year after year, we struggle to gain the happiness our parents never claimed. They told us all we had to do was do what we were told, buy what was sold, invest in gold, and never get old. Yeah. And the chorus to these uh, stanzas is, One more time around is all I'll ask for now. A star to steer by, when to take me home again. Um, I think what this song's really saying is you figure out. You figure out the game. You figure out the scam, whatever it is for you. Everybody go to college, get in debt, do what you're told, follow the rules. And you realize it is actually the renegades in life. Now, not the stupid. There's, there's, you can be smart or stupid in anything. There's people that follow the rules, do it really smart, and they do pretty well. Right? There's people that follow the rules willy-nilly, and they end up hurt. And there's people that follow the rules stupid, and they end up really, really hurt. Well, with being a renegade, if you do it willy-nilly or stupid, you always get hurt. Because there's no one there to pick your ass up when you fall because everybody says you deserve it. When I say renegades, I'm talking about entrepreneurs. Or I'm talking about people that build careers that supposedly they were never capable of building. That are smart about the way they develop their education, their career, their family, their lives. They make their homes into homesteads instead of into their biggest liability. And they don't just follow the, the mantra that it, all the sheep follow. Well, when we snap to that, we realize whatever amount of time it took for us to figure it out, we wasted it. We wasted it. And is there enough time left to change our lives to be what they really can be? That's what this song's talking about. Here's, here's another line in it. 
Dig down deep to find the man I thought I was. A dog on a treadmill, panting. The master pulls the leash, laughing. Now I can't remember why I needed to run. You needed to try so hard. So in us is what I've talked about before, a wild instinct. We are wild beings. But society succeeds to domesticate us, put us on a treadmill, panting. That, that's just the very definition of servicing credit card student loan debt, isn't it? On a treadmill. The, those of you who are still trying to get out of it, don't you feel that's exactly like what it is? Don't some of you still trying to get your life together and designed in a modern lifestyle way, modern survival way, that are still in that struggling phase? Don't you feel that's exactly what you are, a dog on a treadmill panting? And whenever you think you're going to get ahead or get off the, off the treadmill, the master pulls the leash and laughs at you. And you can't remember why you needed to run. That doesn't mean needed to run away, needed to run free. You can't remember why you needed to run free. You needed to try so hard. One more time around is all I ask for now. A star to seek by when to take me home again. Home is not to the beginning of this mistake. Home is where you belong. Home is where you belong. There's always time. There's always enough time, but the sooner you make the decision, the sooner you can find that star to seek by. The sooner you can find that wind to take you home again. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. The secret place, the barrier only I embrace. Time speaking now, they say. Take time to look inside the face. Struggle to gain A happiness I've had never came